Ready or not, NASCAR is set to shut down Lakeshore Drive for nearly a week. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about news of the week from the local housing market. The median price of a home in a white majority neighborhood in the Chicago region, not just the city, Chicago metro area, is 2.77 times or nearly three times the median price of a home in a neighborhood where people of color dominate. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, June 8th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a WinTrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local WinTrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. How's it going? I'm great, Amy. How are you doing? I'm great. As ever, we have so many things to talk about. You always say, oh, I don't know how many things, but there's always so much. I never know how many stories there are going to be. Like they come across my my screen constantly and it's really just sort of a, a management project. How many of these can I get to? <laughs> I know. And you're a machine. You're always like cranking out stories left and right. Let's start by talking about this one. Among big cities, Chicago has one of the widest racial gaps in appraised home value. Tell me about this. This is one of those intractable problems. This gap we're going to talk about hasn't really changed in about 20 years. There's a scholar at UIC, Junia Howell, a sociology professor, who did an in-depth study of appraisals. Um, She has access to a very large database. And I say that now because um, it, it needs to be made clear. This is actually based on data. Some of what I've heard on Twitter is you know, oh, it's just somebody with a political axe to grind. That is not the case. Junia Howell has looked at uh, enormous mountains of appraisal data for the nation, and um, you can parse her data in different ways. But what I got her to pull for me was um, for the biggest cities in America, the difference between the median price of a home in a majority white neighborhood and the median price of homes in majority non-white, majority of color neighborhoods. And it's pretty stark. The median price of a home in a white majority neighborhood in the Chicago region, not just the city, Chicago metro area, is 2.77 times or nearly three times the median price of a home in a neighborhood where people of color dominate. As I said, she pulled this for all the major cities. That gap is only larger in Los Angeles. And one of the things you have to think about is in Los Angeles, there's a giant concentration of wealth, movie stars and that sort of thing with the big fabulous mansions. You'd expect that division to be even larger. And it is larger than any but Chicago. So in Chicago, the median price of a home in a white dominated neighborhood is nearly three times median appraised value of a home in a neighborhood dominated by people of color. Why is this a problem? Well, 
we know that it has historical roots in redlining and all the other means of segregation and denial of home ownership and denial of property wealth that were aimed at non-white people in Chicago. Um, and what we're seeing is this, like that division just gets wider and wider. Uh, there were problems that began in redlining that are still manifest today. Um, and so what happens is there's less access to household wealth. Um, so one of the things she talked about is these are appraised values and she has looked at how appraisals are done. And I have reported how appraisals are done in the past. Um, the Appraisal Institute, which is based in Chicago, a national organization, has talked about how uh, essentially the traditional way for you to enter the appraisal business is there's somebody who is a senior appraiser, a veteran appraiser, who essentially taps you to come join their business. So like-minded people are going to tap like-minded people. So if as that senior appraiser, I have some racial bias built in, I'm likely to transmit that to the, the junior I bring into the business. I'm likely to use the old standbys of black people don't maintain their homes as well, um, other things that contribute to sort of downgrading those appraisals. The Appraisal Institute has acknowledged that this sort of this does tend to happen and has new programs, just rolled one out this year, uh, designed to bring in new appraisers from different uh, routes. They have online training and other things so that you can, as a young person of color or as a young, uh, a young white person who has no attachment, no uh, precursors, predecessors in the appraisal industry, you might come in and learn to do appraisals and not have somebody transmit to you these old ways that are based on race. So down the line, we may see these gaps narrow, but for now, what we see is this legacy of redlining and all the other um, segregation moves adding up to lesser household wealth among people of color. And so I spoke to uh, the head of the Dearborn Realtists, which is a longtime organization in Chicago. They celebrated their 75th anniversary a few years ago and we wrote about the men, but they were organized at a time when black real estate agents couldn't join the Chicago Real Estate Association, and they became the Dearborn Realtists, still around. And the president of the organization said, yeah, so what this means is um, tapping home equity for a college education, for you know whatever it is, for funding retirement. It's not as possible because this has been denied us by biased appraisals on top of bias on top of bias. Uh, and so the farther away we move from that, the more we can hope that that gap narrows and that more people have access to the household wealth that comes from homeownership. Because that's the thing with, with something that's, that's like self-reinforcing, you see exactly how that gap widens, like the example you just gave. Like not only does this perpetuate that uh, issue with homeownership and household wealth, but it prevents you from making other decisions by tapping your equity, like education or retirement or things like that. And that's why that gap is widening. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that has gone on in the past several years is that the appraisal industry has said, oh, yeah, that is true. Yes, we, we tend to perpetuate these old ways of doing things just because the business is handed down from one to another in a sort of self-selection process, or as you described it, a self 
reinforcing process. And so it's nice to know, you know, I'm glad that when I have this story about how the values are so different, I can go to the appraisal institute and, you know, and they're saying, yeah, we're working on it. Yeah, we know. Yeah. As opposed to. That's not true. Right. Going into a defensive crouch. This was not a surprise to me because, as I said, I've written about them before, but it's nice to be able to say some of the people who are responsible for this are trying to fix it. It's not only appraisers uh, who have created these lower home values for uh, people of color, but it is, but they contributed. But I guess that's my question about the appraisal process. Is there not like a standard rubric? Is Is that much of it? based in the judgment of the appraiser, that it could skew that heavily through personal biases? Certainly personal bias can play into it. But part of the problem is, um, according to Junia Howell, appraisers have to look for a property, you know, a, a comparable property within a near range. But if, if a neighborhood changes, if neighborhood boundaries change, um, you may be looking at two homes in Black neighborhoods, one a sort of disinvested, struggling Black neighborhood, and next door, very close by, a thriving, successful Black neighborhood, um, and the lower values of the one of the first neighborhood can help contribute to lowering the values of the other. This is all from her research. This is not my opinion. Um, and, um, and you know, we can hope that over time, these things dissipate. Right. I mean, I, th- I think sometimes naming them and knowing that the the uh, appraisal association is aware, they're not trying to deny that they're like we know, and and here's the, here are the steps we're doing. So that's interesting. That will be that will be interesting to see how the membership body starts to change, and and what programs you know how how what, what kind of inroads those programs make to change that that field a little bit. And it's another to get back to the original story, the original data from Junia Howell. I mean, it it helps to explain differences in levels of investment, levels of household wealth, financial security, the ability to retire between people, you know, because household wealth is in many ways, or is in large part for the middle class based on the, the equity in your home. This is why different people can have different access to all of those things. Sure, sure. Well, let's move to another story. Uh, the Belden Stratford, that is a really just a gorgeous building, but it has been rehabbed. It has gone through a lot of changes. It's been under construction for a while, I feel like, but but it is all done now, almost done? Done. This week, they're reopening. Um, Joe Mansueto, who uh, a lot of people know the name, he had a, a financial services, a financial firm retired from that, and um, he has bought a few buildings in the city, the Wrigley Building, um, the uh, the Waldorf Hotel, and four and a half years ago bought the Belden Stratford. Belden Stratford is 100 years old this year, so it's nice that they're finishing the rehab this year. Um, they uh, The combination of buying and rehabbing the building is about a $200 million investment, $205 million investment. And a lot of what they did was they, uh, one of the architects described it to me as archaeological research because, you know, the building opened in 1923, black and white photos of it exist, but that doesn't help you figure out what colors there were. Black and white photos don't. So they did a lot of digging. Um, Some of it, I said in the story, some of it was serendipity, taking down walls that had been added. They find the old stone behind or underneath those, those walls 
and they're able to say, oh, this is the kind of marble that was used here. Um, they, it, it really looks good inside, also looks good outside. And I want to talk about the windows, but let's stay inside for the moment. The lobby, which is one of those grand hotel lobbies of the 20s, um, now it has these beautiful panels of murals of clouds around the upper stories, cloud mural on the ceiling, um, gorgeous, just an absolutely spectacular room, two stories high, pillars, nice furniture. Some of the furniture is actually recreated tables from photos from the lobby from 1923, Louis XIV tables. They actually had those tables uh, duplicated. But the cool thing that you, you would not have noticed unless you walked in five years ago and then walked in today, which I didn't do, I wasn't there five years ago, so they had to describe it to me, is you're in the lobby and up on your left and up on your right, there are these beautiful mezzanines. So the lobby's two, story, two stories high. And then on those two sides, there's a second story um, space overlooking you with beautiful ornate ceiling, um, wrought iron railings. Those had been hidden. Over the years, um, people had wanted to create more and more apartments in the space. So they had walled off those two mezzanines um, and in the mezzanine space had created apartments, studio apartments for the most part. All that comes down. And so now you have this nice flow of single story, um, more intimate social space, and then down to the two story, more sort of grand and social space. Um, they did a lot of this, as I said, via archaeology, but also what goes on is they gave up the number of units. The number of units shrank because those studios are gone. There had been studio apartments built in the uh, ballroom and a few other places. So in the rehab, the unit count goes down, um, but the sort of quality of living goes up, more amenity spaces, more beauty and gorgeousness. And all that is in service to the idea of making this a luxury apartment building. Rents go as high as $25,000 in the building. Wherever there's historical material, they told me they either kept or recreated, kept what was there and recreated what was missing. But where there wasn't historical material, like one of those mezzanines had been completely debased, they made it look contemporary. So you're not you know, only in a 1920s building. And then the apartments, uh, because they had been deteriorating over the years. All the finishes are brand new in there. And there's one really cool thing they did on the top floor. The uppermost floor of hotel rooms was the 15th. And there was a 16th floor attic under the mansard roof. And that floor was only six feet tall. And it was it was really for storage. You know, in a, in a 1920s hotel, you would have been putting all your trunks and baggage and things up there while you stayed in the hotel for a month at a time. Not needed anymore. So they took out the uh, floor between the 15th and 16th floors. So now you have these beautiful two-story spaces for those penthouse apartments on the upper floors, 15 and what used to be the 16th floor. And many of the windows there are that full height. And that gives us a chance to go out and look at these windows. This, I think this is so cool. So they're recreating a lot of historical details throughout the building. And one of the questions they have, according to one of the architects, is, why are these bands of blue between the windows? These spandrels are blue, but the windows have black frames. So what's the blue doing here? 
Well, up there at one of those attic levels, they find a, a window that had never been replaced. There were all modern windows with black frames. One of them had not been replaced. It had just been painted. They start scraping and they find that the windows were blue. Once again, you know, black and white photos wouldn't have shown you that. So now when you look at the Belden Stratford, all the windows are this beautiful blue. And up there at the mansard roof, the mansard is purple. It's like purple tile. It looks like roof shingles, but in purple. So you've got blue and purple and this carved stone. And what one of the architects said is the exterior was much more polychromatic than we imagined. That was very popular in the 20s, but the only way to find it was, or the only way to figure this out was through this sort of archaeological dig. I love that kind of stuff. That's so interesting. And what a fun project to work on, to to be able to like unearth all that and put those pieces together and look at old photos and have furniture rebuilt and recreated. That's so interesting. Yeah. You know, I mean, I went to see the apartments and, and it is interesting that they're reopening as as luxury apartments, but just the work on bringing back this 1923 grandeur, which had been covered over. One of the things, so talking about the, the that lobby, there are these beautiful panel uh, panels of murals, and um, a lot of that was covered with fabric in the 80s, sort of to cut the sound, acoustical panels, and everything was kind of a pink, sort of a peachy, pinky 80s. Um, yeah. It looked sort of grand, but mm-hmm. but actually by the end, a little uh, bland um, to start a little poem there. It started out sure. grand and it moved to bland, but <laughs> it, it had sort of lost its kind of cachet. And yeah. so they're taking down the fabric and they find that a lot of the original material is still back there. A lot of wow. the old paneling and that sort of thing, which when you're doing a job like this, you know, you need those uh, clues to go on to know what to recreate and what this can look like, which is just adding, just going on what you said about it being fun. I, I think it's so fascinating to just sort of peel away those layers and say, oh, this is what it looked like in 1923. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to that. Yeah, that's right. I feel like we, we've had a, a couple of houses that we've talked about that have had some kind of wild discovery, like, oh, I'm going to take that fireplace down. And then suddenly you realize there's this beautiful, ornate thing behind it. I feel I think there was like a stained glass thing. Yes, there was one in Kenilworth. Yeah, there's a beautiful one in Kenilworth where a George Mayer mural had been covered by, I think, plywood for decades. That's what it was, yeah. Yeah, beautiful mural of, I think, lilies in uh, stained glass and tile. Gorgeous. Good memory, Amy. Well, you know, I pay attention to what you say most of the time. (laughs) Somebody should. (laughs) Well, speaking of Kenilworth, let's talk about uh, a contemporary house in Kenilworth owned by the United COO. Yes, owned until this week by the United um, uh, Chief Operating Officer, Toby Enquist. Uh, and his wife had a really spectacular house. They just sold it for $2.15 million. It's very interesting. Um, I couldn't reach them. Their real estate agent didn't respond. Uh, so I don't know everything. But in the listing, it describes it as essentially a, a massively remodeled older former house. So okay. uh, it, it has it's these two long bars, sort of an L shape big glass windows along one side, lots of indoor, outdoor, like what we've seen in some other houses, a black kitchen, which I think is so interesting. The cabinetry, it's all black, which is um, not what you see every day. Just a really, a, a very nice house. They had it on the market for quite a while. It is, you know, Kenilworth is more traditional home for the most part. 
again, nobody would talk to me, so I don't know, but I would imagine it's a little bit harder to sell a contemporary in Kenilworth than in some other places. Enquist is one of those people, he was with Continental Airlines in Houston, and Crane's readers in particular would remember that Continental Airlines merged with United, which was based here, and a lot of executives then moved up from Houston to Chicago. I wasn't here at the time, but Cranes in 2011 reported that Kenilworth was where a lot of those transferees with Continental were buying. And so then Enquist ends up buying and rehabbing this house. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's really a spectacular house. You usually say it, so I'll say it for you this time. There are pictures at chicagobusiness.com. Thank you, Dennis. <laughs> what do you need me for? I want to go take a nap or something. Oh, for your... For your charm and perkiness, Amy. That's right. That's what it is. That's exactly how people describe me. Your discerning intellect. Well, that's more like it, friend. That's how people really describe you. Yes. All right. Well, let's talk about another house. This is, uh, speaking of executives, uh, a software CEO is asking a record $7.2 million for their house in Bucktown. Yeah. So it has some similarities with the Kenilworth house. It's such a nice look to have that uh, just a long wall of glass where the inside and the outside really do open to one another. This is an interesting house designed uh, by Brad Lynch, very prominent architect who died last fall. And at the time of his death, Lee Bay at the Sun-Times wrote about a couple of the projects he had done, including this house. And what's really interesting is um, the, the family who built the house started out wanting to convert an old warehouse in Bucktown into a home and they weren't finding what they wanted. So Brad Lynch said, let me design you something. It will have the same feeling, that spaciousness, the airiness, the big, tall doors. And he did. It, it, not that it looks like a warehouse, but it has the same sort of openness and expansiveness. It's really beautiful. They're asking 7.25 million for it. Um, that is about two and a half million dollars more than the highest price Anybody on record has paid in Bucktown. The highest price in Bucktown is 4.8 sale price that I wrote about in uh, 2015 or 2016. This is 7.25. So if it goes for about that price, it would not only set a new record, but top the old record by a couple million. Very, very nice house. All right. Well, let's go to another very nice house, and that is <laughs> the mansion in Empire. It is going up for auction after being on the market for 10 years. That's a lot. This is such an interesting story because uh, this was built in the early 2000s by uh, the Sokola family. They're the people who owned, owned the Admiral Theater Strip Club in uh, on Lawrence Avenue, and they also at one point had similar clubs in Las Vegas. Apparently, there's a lot of money in that business because they built a 17,600 square foot house on 8.3 acres, and there are lakes on two sides. Um, it's, it's, it's a very baronial house. It is, and it was used as the home of Lucius Lyon in Empire. That was in 2014, but the house first went on the market in 2013, 10 years ago, for $15.3 million dollars. By June 2023, the price was down to $9.5 million, hasn't sold in all that time, and so it's going up for auction. Last week, we talked about a house in Wilmette that's going up for auction. That one is in the hands of the lender. That's a distressed property. 
This is not that case. This is being auctioned uh, by the owners, the Sokola family, being auctioned, uh, I should say, for the owners. They're not actually leading the auction. The property's not in distress. This is the other way that people use auctions to find out what is the price of my house. I've had it at 15.3 and all sorts of other numbers down to 9.5. And I talked to the auctioneer who said that the way this auction works, you will put in an opening bid, you will submit an opening bid, and the homeowners will look at them, all the bids and say either, yes, let's proceed with the auction, and then the house will sell at the auction that day in July, or they'll say, nah, we're not going to do the auction. And that would be probably because the opening bids weren't close enough to the number they really want to get for the house. So it's going to be interesting to watch. We have had a couple of auctions not go, like the most famous one is the Michael Jordan house. Uh, he had an auction and didn't sell it. There have been some auctions in the Gold Coast where the way it ends is somebody comes in and makes a preemptive bid. I'm going to give you this much and the auction is canceled. That could still happen here. This is a, a house I've written stories about so many times over the years, and so have other real estate writers, because um, it's giant, it's very opulent, then it was in Empire, then it was, the, the advertising was not mentioning Empire, and then that was changed. Um, it's had a very long, you know, 10 years is a long time for a single real estate story. I know, I was going to say, like, this is kind of like a Michael Jordan thing. It's just kind of sitting there and you don't see, I mean, it's more often that we're saying, wow, this house turned so quickly and it sold so quick. By the time we were done recording, it sold. It's usually not the other direction. So, Although I have my eyes on one, it's been on the market for 13 years. Wow. And it just went under contract. Oh, So it should close soon. Well, we'll have to talk about that one soon. When, when you can. All right. Well, um, speaking of asking prices, talk to me about uh, a Gold Coast mansion that sold well below the asking price. Sold for $6.5 million. Uh, when it came on the market in 2021, they were asking 10.2. That's a big jump. About 30% off. And um, this is not unusual. You and I have talked quite a bit. I've written many stories about the difficulty in selling multi-million dollar mansions in the Gold Coast. Once upon a time, the place where all the hottest mansions were, now they've been struggling for several years. Uh, so this one, again, they were asking 10.2. They had brought the price down by the time they sold it, but they were initially asking 10.2, sold for 6.5. Uh, that's not quite as big a come down as one you and I talked about in July on Burton Place. They started out asking 13.5 and sold for seven. This keeps happening on the Gold Coast. However, pivot, even though that it was a big discount, it did sell for six and a half million dollars. That's a lot of money. That's the fourth highest sale price of the year so far, not only in Chicago, but in the Chicago area. And this is a count that I keep offering um, for people who, who bash Chicago. Right now, the five highest priced home sales in the Chicago area in 2023, all five in the city of Chicago. And if you go to 10, eight of them are in the city of Chicago, two are in Lake Forest. So for the people who like to say rich people are abandoning Chicago, not these eight rich people. Right, right. Well, it's important because, I mean, data tells a story that sometimes can run counter to a narrative that kind of gets out, out there that has nothing to back it up. So indeed. I agree completely. All right. Well, let's talk about, uh, this is a lawsuit that's going on. Bronzeville condo owners that are suing investors that they contend are pushing them out. 
Yeah, this is a difficult situation. Um, so this is a, a place called Woodland Park. There are 240 condos in the three buildings, Woodland Park, which is in the 3200 block of South Cottage Grove, right next to, if people know the Stephen Douglas Monument, this property abuts the Stephen Douglas Monument. There are 240 condos, 188 of those, or 78%, are owned by an investor group, and the others are owned by individuals. So uh, that investor group is clearly the majority owner, has 78% of the units. That's not necessarily 78% of the ownership because a three-bedroom unit would have more ownership than a one-bedroom unit, but that's not something I've been able to get exact figures on. That majority owner also, as a result, has three board seats on a five-member board. The board has approved very large special assessments, three special assessments since 2020, and they've done a lot of work. Those individual owners have uh, sued the majority owner. They came to me to say, we can't afford these special assessments, and we think they're doing this specifically to force us out, make it too expensive to live here, too expensive to hold on to my home, so I sell to them. I cannot confirm that in part because the owner of the majority of units, while uh, they were willing to email me a list of all the work they've done and some justification of that, they would not respond to questions about whether this is their motivation. So we don't know that, but we do know that this group of unit owners has sued based on what they call, what their attorney calls breach of fiduciary duty. One of these owners told me the three special assessments have cost him or will cost him, one is ongoing right now, $16,000 in the past few years. He's got a $150,000 condo. And for those who don't know what a special assessment is, uh, monthly assessments pay for general ongoing things. It might be the, uh, the door staff. It might be the cleaning of the, the common spaces, parking, whatever it is. A special assessment is something that is uh, brought out for special projects like a new roof, repairs to flooding, those kinds of things. So based on the information that the investor group sent me, I looked at the assessment for a two-bedroom, two-bath condo. The regular monthly assessments are $300. The special assessment would be $351 a month. So your assessments have gone up by 85% for these projects. Okay, so here's the conflict. The investor group has done a lot of important things like upgrade the elevators, which were prone to stalling and trapping people inside. They have repaved all the parking lots and the circular drive, which were full of potholes. They've done a lot of that sort of thing. They also have done some things that these individual unit owners think are excessive, like they created an outdoor gym at the west end of the property. And one of the individual unit owners pointed out to me, this is Chicago, can't use an outdoor gym all year. He calls it the alleged outdoor gym. Um, that's at the west end of the property. And at the east end of the property, uh, re-landscaping, creating sort of a waterfall, a real sort of entrance garden so that when you come past the gatehouse, you see greenery and a waterfall. These are things that some of these unit owners say are too expensive, um, out of their league, and they feel they're being forced out by jacking up these assessments. But one thing to keep in mind is that majority owner is the majority owner and you know the majority rules in this country. And I spoke to a 
condo lawyer who is not involved in this case. And what he said is, you know, basically this happens in a lot of condominiums. The board needs to do certain things that aren't necessarily in alignment with exactly what you would want done for your condo. But again, the majority rules. He said that what they've done doesn't necessarily amount to breaking the law. He wouldn't comment on whether he thinks these people are being forced out, but their attorney says that she thinks it's intentional, that she thinks the idea is to jack up the assessments to the point where people have to sell and leave. One piece of evidence that may lean in that direction is that since this investor group bought a majority of units, there have been 15 more units sold individually. Every one of those was sold to the investor group. Um, and some of the unit owners say that they, before any of this started, they there was a meeting where the investor group said, we want to buy all your condos. I can't confirm that meeting happened because again, the investor group wouldn't really talk to me. They sent me a list and then wouldn't comment beyond that. But it's it's a pretty difficult piece of tension because the individual unit owners, one of them has lived there since the late 1980s. And she said, they're trying to force us out. And so the question will be, Uh, The question for the court will be, have they breached their fiduciary duty? The larger question is, is this intentional? Are they trying to force people out? One of the things they said in their email to me is, this has been expensive for us too. We own the majority of the units. We're spending the majority of the money in these special assessments, or we're, I should say, contributing the majority of the money to these special assessments. We've had to pay a lot of money too. As always, the answer lies somewhere in between. Yeah, right. Well, we'll have to revisit that story to find out how that shakes out. Uh, As the clock is ticking down, though, one other story I want to check in about, and that is a house by a noted Chinese-American architect. It is for sale for the first time ever. We have talked about this architect before because he had a really fascinating story. This is definitely my favorite of the week. This is a house in Olympia Fields built uh, for Marie and Walter Johnson in 1970. The architect was Y.C. Wang, Yan Chung Wang. And I, so Marie Johnson is, is still in the house. Walter Johnson has died. 53 years later, she's ready to sell. And so she talked to me a little bit. Y.C. Wong, and we'll talk about his history, had built some hard-edged modernist houses in Hyde Park, urban houses. She thought, this is what I want for our suburban lot uh, next to the Olympia Fields golf course. So they call him, they have dinner with him. He designs a house for them that is similar to his urban houses. One of the things they couldn't do is he designed it to be built of steel and they could not find anyone who would build it at the time. It's 1970. So they actually had to go to another architect and have that architect redraw it to be built masonry, which does actually make for a warmer looking house. So they they built it in 1970. There are people who find it too severe. It's a, you know, it's a flat topped, box, sharp edged, flat sides facing the street. There are very few windows facing out into the trees in the back. There's a wall of glass. Some people aren't drawn to the style. I like it, but more important, I like the story. Built in 1970, held on to for 53 years. And then there's YC Wong. I think he's one of the most interesting stories we have among architects in Chicago. And it's such an interesting immigrant story. He's living in China, designing houses, according to him, and I've never been able to see them, but in an oral history he did for the 
Art Institute before he died. He said he was draw, designing houses in China inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright. And don't you want to find some pictures of those? I never has. Frank Lloyd Wright finds out about him and says, let me bring you over to, to America to study at my school, Taliesin. He says, cool. But then the Chinese authorities say, well, Taliesin is not an accredited university. You can't go. So later, he ends up coming to Chicago. He gets to Chicago anyway. Too late to go to Taliesin. He works in a gift shop in Chicago, Chinatown, while trying to get into IIT. He ends up connected to Mies van der Rohe. So he's already had a connection to Frank Lloyd Wright. Now he's connected to Mies van der Rohe. Mies van der Rohe says, let me find you a scholarship, and does. So this man, Yan Chung Wang, has now interacted with like the two pillars of Chicago modernist architecture. So Mies gets him a scholarship. Mies puts him to work later. Y.C. Wong works on the Edith Farnsworth house. He works on Mises' Lakeshore Drive apartments. After Mises' death, he works on the original buildings of O'Hare Airport. And he got here because Frank Lloyd Wright said, hey, I like what you're doing. And he ends up working on some of our iconic mid-century buildings and then designing homes. And as I said, the Johnsons give him a call and say, hey, what could you do down here? There are actually two Y.C. Wong houses right in that area. I wrote about one a couple of years ago, and it's a little bit more aggressive. It sort of sits up on, not quite on stilts, but it's it's even more like hard modernist than this one. And wasn't that his house? His house was in Hyde Park, and we talked about that one a couple of years ago. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. I am so fascinated by his story. I think there's a, a movie in it. You know, Chinese architect inspired by Frank Lloyd Wright in China, and then he gets he, you have cameo roles for two big actors to play Frank Lloyd Wright and Mies van der Rohe. Could be a very interesting story of an immigrant's rise to success. You only need some sort of you know major turning point in the script. Now I got to be thinking of who who to cast as all of those all of those roles. All right. Well, what else will we be talking about this time next week? There are a couple of really interesting houses coming up. There's a house in Elmhurst from a very significant architect by owners of many many years. And what they're trying to do is make sure it gets in the hands of a homeowner who appreciates this architecture and not somebody who will tear it down. Teardowns being rampant in Elmhurst. Yeah. All right. Well, we will talk all about it this time next week. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Amtrak seeks funding to boost one of its major Chicago routes. We'll talk about that and more right after this. No matter what industry you're in, the successful design of our shared spaces for work and beyond has become more important than ever. The 54th edition of Neocon, the leading platform for commercial space design, runs June 12th through 14th at the Mart in Chicago. This is the ideal opportunity to find inspiration from top industry professionals and impactful solutions from more than 400 leading and emerging companies from around the world. Find details and register to attend at neocon.com. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. 
As the city begins to close streets in preparation for next month's downtown NASCAR race, one major closure still lies ahead, and that is DuSable Lakeshore Drive, which, despite its status as a major highway used by nearly 130,000 vehicles a day, according to the Illinois Department of Transportation, the roadway will be closed southbound for nearly a week and potentially longer. Under the latest plan announced by the city and confirmed by NASCAR, southbound lanes on Lakeshore Drive, those that will be used for races scheduled July 1st and 2nd, will be closed to non-NASCAR vehicles the evening of June 28th from Randolph to McFetridge. That closure will allow for installation of concrete barriers and other race construction. The lanes are expected to reopen by July 4th, according to the city's Office of Emergency Management and Communications. However, if it rains on either July 1st or 2nd and the racing is put back a day, reopening will be delayed as well. Northbound lanes on the same area of the drive will also be closed, but for a much shorter period of time, from 4 a.m. on race day July 1st until the evening of July 2nd, again, weather permitting. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that officials at one point considered temporarily running two lanes of traffic each way on what normally are northbound lanes, but they ruled that out for safety reasons. NASCAR spokesperson Dan Culleton says the group has distributed more than 45,000 detailed brochures, hosted facts online, and participated in more than 150 meetings with local businesses, organizations, and residents. Acting Office of Emergency Management and Communications Director Jose Tirado said the organization has been messaging since April 10th and said they'll soon amplify that messaging with radio and TV spots. Hines noted that to avoid trouble, the city is urging those who want to drive from the north side to the south side during NASCAR week to use the Dan Ryan or north-south thoroughfares such as State Street, Wells Street, LaSalle Street, and Wacker Drive, or to use the Kennedy Expressway, though it too is in the middle of a major construction project. At the point of Randolph and Lakeshore Drive, motorists will be instructed via signs and other devices to reroute to Lower Wacker. OEMC officials say they'll also be urging motorists to exit the drive further north to avoid snarls and will have extra traffic management personnel on hand to direct traffic. And for those who might be thinking of using Michigan Avenue as an alternate, portions of it will also be closed starting June 29th. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that community groups, environmental activists, and elected officials gathered at City Hall on Tuesday to say they'll continue to fight the opening of a metal shredder on the southeast side. Last week, administrative law judge Mitchell X vacated former Mayor Lori Lightfoot's denial of an operating permit to Southside Recycling, formerly known as General Iron, to operate a scrapping facility in the city's 10th ward on the southeast side. Mayor Brandon Johnson said the administration would appeal the judge's ruling to, quote, continue our fight to uphold our authority under the law to make decisions that protect the environment, health and quality of life for residents on the 10th Ward and all environmental justice communities. Lawrence noted that Lightfoot's decision to deny the permit came after Michael Reagan, the administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, expressed concerns over the company's environmental record while operating along the Chicago River in Lincoln Park and after a protracted battle with activists, including a hunger strike, to oppose the permit. Kim Wasserman, the executive director of the Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, said, quote, our communities can no longer be sacrifice zones for the prosperity of a few. 
Wasserman said the environmental movement would not only hold the Johnson administration accountable to his commitments, but would, quote, ensure industry hears us. Community activists welcomed Johnson's decision to appeal on Tuesday and said they'll continue their own fight to let Southside Recycling's parent company, Reserve Management Group, know that they are unwelcome in the community. In his ruling, the judge said that the company, quote, had met the rules and requirements for an operating permit. Lawrence noted in reporting that after the ruling, an RMG spokesperson, Randall Samborn, said, quote, the hearing exposed the city's failure to follow its own rules and ordinances. But the company will also continue to pursue a separate $100 million lawsuit it filed against the city, seeking damages it alleges it incurred because of the denial of the permit, Samborn said. Both an appeal of the judge's decision in circuit court and the separate lawsuit could expose the city to a more robust evidentiary process than the administrative hearing process allowed, including witness testimony and depositions of top city officials. Lawrence noted in reporting that Olga Bautista, executive director of the Southeast Environmental Task Force, said the appeal should be a, quote, top priority of the city's acting corporation counsel, Mary Richardson Lowry, who was appointed by Johnson just last week. Bautista said, quote, this is an example of how the community and government can co-lead. Also saying co-leadership is key, and that's what Brandon ran on, and we're here to make sure that happens. Vienna Beef plans to undertake a $20 million redevelopment to turn its former Bucktown factory space into its new corporate offices, factory store, and restaurant. The Riverside location at 2501 North Damon will also include retail space that may eventually be occupied by other companies, according to a press release. The new 150,000-square-foot complex will be named Vienna Beef Plaza. Crane's Avery Donmoyer reported that before the move, there will be substantial renovations, including the construction of a new outdoor space. The former warehouse space will be converted into retail space that will be able to accommodate three to five stores and big box companies. That, according to a statement from Vienna Beef Vice President Tom McGlade, made to Block Club Chicago. Those spaces will reportedly be available in early 2024. Don Moyer noted in reporting that this is not the first time the Bucktown location will have a Vienna restaurant and factory store. The company moved its corporate offices to the West Loop three years ago, taking the restaurant and factory with them. But after Vienna Beef moved out, the Bucktown location was first set to become a golf range. But the project fell through during the early phases of the pandemic. The returning factory store will sell a full range of Vienna beef meat products. The restaurant, slated to open in the spring of 2024, will be decorated with memorabilia in reference to the company's 130-year history in Chicago. The press release indicated that Vienna beef workers currently located at its Fulton Market and Bridgeport offices will relocate to Vienna Beef Plaza office space, which is meant to accommodate about 50 workers. Amtrak has formally applied for federal funding to upgrade one of its major interstate routes locally, the Chicago to New York Cardinal Service via Indianapolis, Cincinnati, and Philly. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that in an announcement this week, Amtrak said it's seeking $500,000 to expand Cardinal Service to daily from the current three times a week. The passenger line also wants $4.4 million in capital funds for track work that will speed traffic times between Indianapolis and Dyer, Indiana. Hines noted that the Cardinal is one of a handful of Amtrak long-distance lines that currently runs less frequently than once a day. 
Service was trimmed amid federal budget cuts in the 1990s, but the $1 trillion infrastructure bill approved by Congress in 2021 required the Federal Railroad Administration to study the feasibility of returning to daily service. Hines noted that Amtrak's application for the Cardinal Line was submitted to the FRA and would be funded by the infrastructure bill, in particular by a clause designed to add Amtrak service outside of the Northeast Corridor. The requested funding is part of a larger application that also seems to expand service on Amtrak's Sunset Limited line from New Orleans to Texas. That's Crane's Daily Just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.